Hey everyone. I have been heads down these past couple of weeks finishing the final major round of edits for my next book. The book is called Touching Two Worlds, a guide to finding hope in the landscape of loss. And it will be published next summer, which feels like an eternity away for me, but I'm really proud of the way that it's coming together and the team that's around me is just extraordinary in helping this book to be a piece of work that's really, really beautiful, but also hopefully very practically helpful. So because it's been top of mind for me, I thought I would spend time on the podcast this week reading you an excerpt from the book. The section that I'm going to read is entitled How to Talk to Grieving People. And the way that it's structured is that um, most of the essays in the book are structured this way. It starts with a story, a reflection, my recounting usually something from my own life that has been a teacher about grief and loss and resilience. And then the end of the chapter shifts into some kind of practical or creative takeaway. Sometimes it's a breathing exercise. Sometimes it's some very strategic tips, something to do with the story that I've invited the reader to reflect on. So really trying to pair practical, tactical, psychological help with memoir, with reflection, and with story. As I sit down to record this today, it it does feel like uh, the world continues to be in significant chaos. I have friends evacuated from fires in California. A couple of bombs just went off in the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. There's loss and suffering and grief all around. So I hope it's not too self-indulgent. I hope it actually does serve you to uh, spend some time with this chapter, with this material today. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. How to talk to grieving people. I spent my junior year of college living in West Africa. When I returned from my year away, my friends would ask, how was it? And I would stare at them blankly. My blank response was not because I didn't want to share, but because it was so hard to know where to start. The really good stories required a lot of background, like what a trotro is, why you never touch anyone with your left hand, and how toilets aren't toilets, but a small drain in a concrete floor. Many assumptions were different, and in order to really share my experience, I felt like I needed to begin with a lot of explaining. While there, I carried a five-gallon bucket of water on my head each morning and then used a pump to purify the day's drinking water. There was no hot water. The electricity worked only sometimes. My university friends shared a handful of books for 40 students in a class and memorized the teacher's notes verbatim. I had to check my shoes for scorpions and terrible spiders. And all of that was fine. It became part of my life. It was so different that it was hard to explain. Every taste, every scent, every shade of green, the way of saying hello, the way of being a friend the scent of the rain. 
the color of the dirt. Every detail of life was new and fresh and foreign and a little bit disorienting. Over the course of the year, I accumulated so many stories that it is difficult to capture my experience without a really long conversation. The time I was bitten by a monkey, the time I hitchhiked to the border of Burkina Faso and Ghana, the time my lab partner asked me to marry him and really meant it, the time I mistakenly urinated in someone's bathing area because I asked for a bathroom and not the toilet and toilets aren't toilets anyway, so it can be very confusing. It's impossible to tell these stories in a sentence or even a paragraph. To sum up my experience with great or fine made my heart hurt. It reduced something so immense and meaningful to a soundbite. I'd almost rather keep it to myself than try to cram the immensity into a few words to satisfy someone's casual interest. One of the great heartaches of grief is how hard it is to explain to people especially the people that I love. When people find out that my brother died, they look at me with wide eyes and say, I'm so sorry, how are you? I fumble through some lame version of I'm okay, and we change the subject. Some friends never bring it up again. Of course, my real answer is different. My real answer is my whole world is different. A million things are different. All of the assumptions have changed. All of the colors are different. But I can't explain all of that without some follow-up questions and time. It's a long conversation. The one and done, how are you conversation is bullshit. The problem is that even loving, well-meaning people find it extraordinarily hard to know what to say and how to relate to someone who's living in such a sad story. And I have amazing, intelligent, sensitive friends. Grief is very isolating. It's isolating for the bereaved and for those who love them. It's a years-long solitary journey to a distant land, and communication is hard. I lived in West Africa from 1998 to 1999. The internet was kind of just catching on. No one had cell phones. No one had personal computers. I was dating Rob at that time, and we wrote letters back and forth. Letters that took weeks to arrive and were outdated by the time that they arrived. We had to be careful in these letters because a misunderstanding or poorly phrased idea could take six weeks to clear up given the back and forth pace of letters. We learned to be patient with each other and we learned to give each other the benefit of the doubt when we found something confusing or unclear. In some ways, I'm now grateful for that year of emotional patience. It was a year of checking the mail every day. It was a year of waiting and longing. My typical way of being in the world is to move fast. I'm driven and ambitious and I fill my days to the brim, but none of that serves me now. Grieving these losses will take me years. I once again find myself in a foreign land where everything moves very slowly and emotional endurance is an essential strength. No one can enter this with me, not really. Just like the year in Ghana, grief is imprinting on me in a way that can't be easily shared. My brain is full of new memories that include the sights and sounds and scents of death. My heart has been broken and glued back together and is cracked in ways that are unknown, even to those who know me the best. All of this shifting has happened within the silence of my cells, unseen and unsaid. Losing someone to suicide is especially isolating. It's violent and traumatic. People don't know what to say. When I lost my dad to cancer, people say things like, it always happens to the good ones, or he fought so hard, or sometimes something like, God called him home. 
But with suicide, it only happens to the bad ones. Bad is in quotes. <laughs> the broken, the lost, mentally ill, the failed ones. The ones who didn't fight hard enough, the ones who were selfish, the quitters. The ones who didn't respect God's timing, but instead took matters into their own hands. None of the one-sentence lines, none of the platitudes work with suicide. It makes conversations very difficult. It was so hard to talk about Dave's death that many people simply didn't know for a long time. I had coffee with a friend the day after he died and I didn't say a word about it. I couldn't bear to form the words in my mouth. And that would make them real. It was easier to be quiet. The people that I did tell seemed shocked and sad and I felt pulled to tend to their feelings. That's my problem, of course, not theirs. I felt more and more isolated. The more isolated I felt, the harder it became to talk about it, and it became a cycle of silence. Unfortunately, there were also a number of occasions when people said really unhelpful things. One of the harder comments that someone said to me about Dave's death was, well, you kind of knew this would happen. And while that's objectively true, I did know that he was ill. I did know that he was struggling with addiction. I did know that he had depression. It felt so unhelpful to my grief because, yes, in my thinking brain, I knew it may happen. But my brother still died in a shocking and violent way, and I'm absolutely destroyed by it. So give me a little space to fall apart before pointing out all the ways that this was predictable and that I should have had time to emotionally prepare. The knowing that the thing is going to happen doesn't eliminate the grief. I knew my father was going to die of cancer and I was still in grief. The psychologist part of my brain could predict that Dave would probably die early and that suicide may be the outcome, but that doesn't negate the mountain of pain. Loving friends don't always know what to say or what to ask. When I came back from Africa, I didn't need to share all of my stories with everyone in my life, but it was important to me that they somehow acknowledge that I had been somewhere different and that it had changed me. So grief has felt very similar. We can't pretend that life is the way it used to be or that I am the way I used to be. This is not a sustainable assumption. I find the most solace with friends who have lost parents or people they love. There's a shared experience without speaking. I don't have to explain how I'm feeling or why I can't sleep at night or why I'm desperate to tell someone a story about the time. As children, my brothers and I found a discarded stop sign and we risked what felt like life and limb to transport it back to our house in a wagon. And we hung it in our tree fort where it stood as a totem to our shared mischief and willingness to work together to acquire treasures that may or may not been have procured in violation of some local laws. Those memories are precious and delightful, and sometimes they burn inside of me. People who've known loss understand the tension between wanting to talk endlessly about the memories and the utter need to remain in sealed quiet. So let's get practical for a moment. If you'll permit me, here are a few suggestions for how to care or talk to grieving people. Number one, send something. Because loss is the absence of something, the presence of things feels oddly helpful. Flowers, a card. My friend Carrie sends great care packages with nail polish and chocolate bars. After my brother died, my friend Brooke sent a simple necklace of a seashell. My friend Teresa had a bouquet made of flowers that grow near Glacier National Park in Montana, where Dave died. Holding the tangible thing helps counterbalance the untethered feeling that goes along with reaching out for somebody who used to be there and isn't there anymore. 
Sending something expresses love in a tangible way when a long conversation is difficult. Suggestion number two, help with the practical stuff. There are so many practical things that go along with loss. The logistics are a nightmare. There's lots of paperwork and phone calls. Grief leaves many of us not deeply interested in daily things like cooking. So one friend sent gift cards for Uber Eats. Other friends sent gift cards to local restaurants. And after my dad died, the ladies in my mom's Bible study loaded her fridge and freezer such that she didn't have to cook for months if she didn't want to. One friend went over to her house to do yard work. Number three, ask about the one that died. Some of us aren't comfortable with this, but it's actually really, really helpful. My friend Jamie once asked, do you want to tell me a story about Dave? And that was the best question. He's on my mind constantly and it's killing me that he's gone and that the world will miss the opportunity to know him. So when someone invites me to talk about him, it's, it's a huge gift. It moves him from the shadows and from memory into the present tense. It makes him a tiny bit alive because he's the subject of a real conversation. I'm saying his name. I'm telling stories about him. Number four, rephrase, how are you, into something more specific. How are the holidays feeling this year? What most reminds you of your grandmother? How are you sleeping these days? Is anything making you laugh right now? What has surprised you about the way you feel after the loss of your sister? Asking about a specific part of someone's well-being helps to focus the conversation and prevents overwhelm. It also conveys caring and interest, like you're really trying to dive in and understand their experience. How are you is fine, but it's, it's just, it's too general. It's too broad. It's easy to get lost and answer with one syllable. Number five. I've also found it really helpful when people have said, I don't know what to say, but I love you and I have two hours absolutely free to talk, to take a walk or do anything you'd like. A friend who didn't know what to say made me a playlist on Spotify. She said, I don't know what to say, but these songs help me when I feel upset. It was a beautiful, soulful gift from her heart to mine. And we didn't have to have a conversation where she felt uncomfortable or overwhelmed. So if you are in grief and any of these suggestions sound good to you, go back to your list of people, the list you made a few chapters ago. I had an earlier exercise in the book where I asked people to make a list of their sources of support, friends and family, things like that. Anyway, go back to that list and let a few of those people know about the tips that are helpful. Let them know how they can best support you. Don't assume that they know how to show up. If you can muster the energy, let them know what you need. So that's the end of that essay. I guess it's kind of a specific take on how to have hard conversations. There's not a landing page or anything up for the book quite yet. So if you want to make sure that you don't miss the launch, um, you can always sign up for the Zen Founder newsletter on zenfounder.com, which is going to get a facelift soon. So if it looks a little dated, forgive me. It'll be better soon. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. 
You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.